Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, inspiring people and places, listeners, we have an exciting, uh, exciting dual interview today, maybe uh, more of a free-flowing conversation than we're used to, uh, but the the uh, interviewees are no strangers to the, to the uh, podcast. Uh, Duke DeLuca and Jill Jameson were both inaugural guests on the podcast, uh, and both were, were original inspirations for the podcast. Duke DeLuca, uh, former boss in the military, uh, retired, retired Brigadier General uh, from the Corps of Engineers, and Jill Jameson with uh, Illuminati Infrastructure uh, Advisors. Uh, if I got that wrong, she'll correct me. Um, but two of two of the people that I, I originally reached out to to be on the podcast to get us started because they were the inspiration for for what we're doing on the podcast, which is highlighting really smart people, thought leaders in this space uh, that that I've had the chance to be around or be mentored by, uh, and and bring to our audience some of the conversations that we've had on on bigger topics. So today we're going to dive into. Uh, a little bit of the state of the infrastructure as we wrap up the the year, and we've had a lot of conversations and, and have heard a lot in the news about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, from the Biden administration, and and really just to get Duke and Jill's take on uh, what's going on, what what do we need to know as an industry around that macro topic, how is inflation affecting it, and supply chains affecting it, and how can we ensure that at the end of the day, we as an industry, as stewards of this public investment, uh, do our best to get this right at the top levels of government down to the to the trenches of where the uh, projects are happening. So without further ado, Duke and Jill, welcome back to the show. So good to have you. Great to see you. Uh, haven't seen either of you in a while. Uh, I'll, I'll open it up to both of you uh, and see who jumps at it first. But when I say IIJA, you say good news, bad news, great news, or somewhere in between. When you yeah. say IIJA, I say bipartisan infrastructure law. <laughs> yeah. So even even the name hasn't hasn't come to a conclusion. Well, I'll let, I'll let Duke go first, and then I can follow on his uh, his comments. How's that? So what I say when I hear either bipartisan infrastructure law or IIJA is a small part of the story. There was an enormous amount of infrastructure, federally funded infrastructure, that was in the American Relief Act passed in early 2021. There's an enormous amount of incentivization of private commercial investment in infrastructure, critical infrastructure, in both the Inflation Reduction Act, it's incentivized in there, in the form of our energy markets, and in the CHIPS Act, which is reshoring highest tech uh, chip manufacturing here in the United States, which is having an impact already at least five $20 billion campuses under construction around the country already. Um, and so IHA is a fabulous story, a bipartisan story, and it, but it is only part of probably the greatest federal investment in infrastructure since the middle uh, 20th century, since the, the, the New Deal uh, and since the continuation of New Deal ideas after 
the break during World War II when everything was focused on the war effort, which involved the dam building and everything else, and the, then the national highway system in the, during the Eisenhower administration starting that. Jill? So, yeah, no, I was actually going to say <clears throat> the same thing. It's it's not just the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. It's it's the portfolio of investments that have come out. And, um, you know, it's big numbers, right? And, and I do think, to Dick's point, that this is historic in many respects. Unfortunately, though, it kind of hit at the exact worst moment in terms of spending power, right? So we've had <clears throat> supply chain issues. We've had inflation. We've had all of these issues. So it's been sort of eroding the buying power that we have with that. Um, on top of it, it also created um, some weird problems um, and opportunities. So I don't really want to talk about the problems. Some of the weird problems, and, and so I'll just refer to, to where Duke came from at, at the Army Corps of Engineers, right? So they got $52 billion, but it's a $6 billion institution, right? So its budget, its systems, its personnel is really sort of organized to be able to manage a certain size budget. Then all of a sudden this whirlwind of money comes in a lot of public agencies, not at the federal level, only at the federal level, but at state and local levels are like, wait, Wait, what do we do? Um, so there's been a little bit of this people being caught on the back of their heels, which is unfortunate because we've been asking for this <laughs> for 30 years, right? And so um, there, there is something to be said for being prepared when um, when your when your ship comes in. And on the flip side of that is, um, you know, the inflation. So, so the federal funding is very helpful. But it's never the entirety of the story, especially when you get to state and local governments. They've got to find their cost shares. And where originally there were a lot of projects in the pipeline, all of a sudden now we are seeing projects canceled, even though that federal money is there, simply because they don't have the cost share, the affordability issues, et cetera. So it's a complicated time. There's lots being worked through. I think uh, we've seen a couple of, of big projects canceled, but generally they're project-specific cancellations. In general, people are still very interested in moving out and the money got out pretty quickly, especially with IAJA, I'm going to be honest with you, um, for existing programs. So where they just added money to an existing program, we still haven't seen money in some of the new programs, right? And that's just the frustration of federal rulemaking, <laughs> which I, I get. I'm, I'm behind. It has to happen. But it's unfortunate that, you know, years later, we still haven't seen a drop of money, for instance, for Western Water, for indirect potable reuse and some of those others because they're new programs and it requires a little time to get up and running. So you, you hit on the $6 billion institution of the Corps of Engineers and a $52 billion program. How many agencies are like that? And, and let's look at not just the agencies, but the industry as a whole. And are we going to fall on our face? Or, or what are the good news stories that you're seeing in, in response to it to, to get ready if we're, if we're caught a little flat-footed right now? Well, I, I think flat-footed is, is probably the wrong term. Um, you know, what you have to do is you have to pivot and reconsider how your agency is going to deliver, right? And that may mean innovative contracting. So in the Corps of Engineers, again, a really good feel-good story um, is a weird, uh, weird because it's not sort of that, that thing we talk about normally when we talk about infrastructure, but the, the South Platte River and Tributary um, uh, Ecosystem Restoration in Denver. Um, so they got full funding uh, through a word of bill for that project. And so what the Corps is doing is basically for the first time ever using its special 
it has certain uh, authorities. It's called the 204 authority that basically allows them to give the money to Denver for Denver to get to work. Instead of the core having to go through all the contracting process, it allows for kind of a split. Whereas instead of Denver giving money to the core, the core can actually disperse that money for the project in a more timely manner. So it, it really is an issue of, of institutions trying to look for ways that they can leverage this and get this money into the ground, as we say. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of creative thinking going on in that regard. Um, certainly people will run up against authorities issues and those sorts of things, but I've not met a single person that wants to see this money sit in the bank. <laughs> um, everyone's looking for ways to get it into the ground to improve the infrastructure. Yeah. And so now Jill has commented first uh, on capacity issues using the core as an example. And by the way, 6 billion, 52 billion is the civil work side of the core. It doesn't right. include the other missions, military missions. The core's total portfolio though, this, this is still the same problem, Jill, just a little bit bigger is uh, they have an over hundred billion dollar program now, and only fifty billion of it, as of this fall, October, was under contract, and the other fifty billion wasn't even developed in under contract or solicited yet. So it is an enormous uh, blob of work to be done. An organization is not crafted and designed and capable, you know, with the capability, the capacity uh, to do it simultaneously rapidly, right? In the way that obviously politicians, I think would like, citizens would like, and people like us would like. So they are experimenting with new ways to do things. Now in the past, we've tried to bring in some of the innovative methods that were used for military construction and other government construction and intelligence community to be used in the civil works realm because the civil works realm is notoriously the slowest and most expensive, uh, most subject to delays uh, for lots of reasons, many of which have been placed into law and policy by Congress, not just, uh, you know, uh, poor management or unimaginative management. But <clears throat> I think we'll see a lot of procedural experimentation to compensate for the capability limitations that the various agencies have in dealing with this at state and local and federal levels. I think uh, the other thing is, I think we're going to see a batching of product rather than 50 projects of $10 million in size that we might parcel out and manage independently among these many agencies at whatever level, local, state, uh, federal, you're going to see a lot of system contracts for batches of projects that are related and maybe in some cases might not be as related as you think they would be in order to propel this work forward and get it solicited, get it awarded, get somebody on the hook to deliver it on a certain timeline, whatever that is in the form of, you know, the responses to the proposal, request for proposals. Uh, I, I suspect we'll see a bit of that too, which may lead to many more mega projects than we're used to seeing. And of course they require a special type of management and approach. If you want them to succeed on time and on budget, they have a tendency to have cost growth, mega projects and, uh, and schedule growth, more cost growth and schedule, but, but both. I'll stop there because we can go in a lot of directions. I, what you just hit on starts to make me think about the stewardship of the investment when it when it hits the ground. Um, how do we manage it? How do we make sure it stays on track? How do we make sure it doesn't grow? And I want to hit on two topics. Maybe we'll start with inflation first. Uh, second is is ensuring that we're we're making this investment for the future, that we're taking into consideration technology, that we're doing this sustainably, that we're, you know, we, we haven't done this, as Duke said, since the New Deal. So if we're going to make this huge investment, are we making it 
with all of the right thought going into the future generations that this infrastructure is going to affect and, and smart technology and any other innovation that's out there. Um, I said we would start with inflation. Why don't we start with the innovation side first? Jill, reactions to building back smarter, not just building back uh, to replace so the, the unfortunate reality is that <clears throat> even when we combine, uh, you know, um, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure jobs and um, the IAJA, et cetera, all together, we're still just talking about a drop in the bucket in terms of what this nation needs to actually bring its infrastructure up to speed. So uh, recent studies say something like $4.7 trillion is needed in like the next eight years just to keep pace with, with GDP. And we have in total maybe $1.2 billion, uh, $1.2 so we're still short. And obviously some of that is filled with, with state and local governments, et cetera. But the truth is that there's a lot of this is rebuilding in addressing our deferred maintenance, right? So we've got roads and bridges that are falling down. We got levees that are falling apart. We've got all these things that are the stuff of headlines, right? With 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 tragedies happening here and there. Add to that the fact that we now have new challenges uh, like sea level rises due to climate change and those sorts of things. Add to that that we also have this technological sea change going on, right? So, so whereas infrastructure used to be concrete and, and rebar, uh, now it is going to need to maybe incorporate things like smart sensors, et cetera. So what we're seeing just writ large is that there was very little language in any of these bills about building smarter infrastructure. There's a little bit of language here and there throughout IAJA about um, sort of pilot programs and some smart grants that are used primarily for transportation um, to kind of experiment and pilot smart sensors to see if that would work. But the industry itself needs to be incentivized. And so, so what we have is we have procurement officers who are trying to get the lowest bid possible because they're thinking of the capital costs, right? And they're like, we need to do this once and that, but we have to start thinking of the life cycle costs. And if you add smart sensors and things like that, there's a, there's a dam smart pro program that USDA has for all of sort of the rural dams that includes sensors that can tell you if a dam is going to burst, if it's, if it's fatigued, all these things that Duke can probably explain from an engineering perspective. We also have things like now, you know, Re, self-rehabilitating pavements. These sorts of things, you know, and we saw this when in, in Minnesota a decade ago, a bridge fell down. When they rebuilt that bridge, they included smart sensors that have allowed them to make preventative, timely interventions in the infrastructure. But there's very little language in, in the infrastructure bill about that. Um, we've all been working with DOT and others to try to get this at the procurement level, that these sort of things can be incentivized, right? It doesn't have to be legislated. Everything doesn't need to be legislated. There are other ways of doing it. Um, but the truth is, you know, we lose about 60% of our drinking water on a daily basis due to, 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 to pipe leakage. We need to do better. And we have we have tools now. We have smart tooths for, for, for pipes and those sorts of things where we can actually in real time know where we're losing water, plug those holes and help save some of the, the conditions. But it is something that is a real sore point. I just published a uh, piece with Harvard, um, the Ash Center, uh, where we talked about building back smarter. And we went through, you know, probably 20 different sectors, talked about the need. And as a result, you know, we've been working with the White House and some other folks in terms of trying to get the policy right, as well as trying to get the education to the people who are actually running these procurements to make sure that they're incentivizing and evaluating this in the appropriate manner. But yeah, it's frustrating. 
we don't want to build back to Jurassic levels. We want to look to the future, and the future is probably a little different than what we built in 1934. Well, that was fabulous. Yes, it, that's, it is absolutely uh, going to be a different future than, than it was, and we shouldn't restore what previously existed as our outcome. That is a terrible outcome that doesn't address really an unprecedented level of demand for infrastructure improvements in the country and the world. But I'll focus on the United States because that's where we live and that's what I care about the most. Uh, you know, you have what Jill has talked about, four and a half trillion dollars to recapitalize the existing infrastructure, let alone the new demands being placed on it uh, by a change in climate. She mentioned changes in demography, uh, which need to be mentioned, which also affect the resources available, particularly traps, crates, and ex experienced equipment operators, which will never exist in the same absolute numbers in the future as they have existed during the baby boom generation. Therefore, you're going to have to do something else, right? But the good news is the in construction industry, as uninnovative as it has wanted to remain for so long, is going to be disrupted, is being disrupted even now. In fact, uh, Happily, one of the groups I'm working with is a company that does uh, AI-enabled autonomous earth moving. And they are delivering projects today doing this. And they are this system can be mounted on any piece of equipment existing or integrated into a new production vehicle if you want. Uh, it doesn't change whether a human can operate it or not. It doesn't wo void the warranty on the equipment because it doesn't cut any lines. It can work hydraulic or electric. It uh, remains usable by humans while it's mounted. It uh, operates at the level of an experienced operator. It can operate 24-7. It communicates 110 times a second on the status of the piece of equipment and its orientation in space. And so it can tell you about those things Jill's talking about. And, and you know, it, smart buildings that tell you when something's going to fail. Smart infrastructure that tells you when something is going to develop a problem, hasn't developed it yet, but it's showing the sign that it will develop in a certain amount of time. Uh, it cues you on all those vehicle status things to include fuel, obviously, and it has safety features that prevent it from destroying itself, other pieces of equipment or humans, either in or nearby. It can operate in very tight areas uh, very efficiently and effectively. Uh, can operate in all weather. And, you know, night, day, uh, it uses a variety of sensors to see and sense. It can be loaded. It can be interneted. It can be a site internet, you know, a, region, a little a site that's where all the equipment's interneted together. Or it can connect through the internet. You can control 20 sites if you want to. You can operate without being connected to anything and independently, you know, loading simple things like CAD PDFs and CAD files to uh, get to the state that you want to. And more importantly, they already have a management and, and planning and decision-making layer inside this, which does, so you're digging a trench for the pipeline, for the fiber optic, whatever it is, and the trench falls in because it's rainy weather. It's bad. Okay. It'll sense that and it will adjust its plan to correct that deficiency. It doesn't not need to be, it's not a, you know, it's not like the punch tape production line machines that stamped out 200 widgets when we fed the tape through it in the 1950s. It's, it's, it's got an ability to plan and change its plan and adapt to a site that is not like what you planned, which is the case for almost every site that you right. build on. Except maybe in the Sun Belt, there's some areas still where you can get a green field. But there's always a power cable or a pipe that's down there that's not supposed to be there or an explosive hazard or remnant of war, or depending on where you are. So this is available. You can buy it, lease it today. Yeah. And what, it's, it's what, not, yeah go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, one, one of the 
advantages of this as well is having what we call anonymized data, right? So you've got smart sensors and what it's doing is it's just looking at this data and saying, okay, you need to make an intervention in that street, that bridge, that levy, whatever it is, is that it really starts to allow budget making to be done um, on a, on a data-driven basis and it gets rid of some of the political biases. And so we talk a lot about equity and inclusion and infrastructure and how in the past it's really divided, sort of it's been prejudicial to lower income and, and minority communities. Imagine if your um, DOT was making pavement related repairs on the basis of this anonymized data instead of on the basis of who's calling and making complaints because some people don't have time, et cetera. It, it really does allow you to start to equalize the, the playing field a little bit. You can also look at things like car accidents. You can look on top of that, to, to Duke's point about labor never getting back to where we were, just think about it. I mean, we have some areas like levees where the, and, and Duke will correct me when I misspeak on this, but to this day, still the most common sort of maintenance uh, approach is visual inspection. So somebody goes out and checks a levy. We don't even know where all of our levees in this country are. <laughs> They're not completely mapped. So we have thousands and thousands of miles. Right. So imagine instead of sending some guy out on a two day drive to find a levee where he can only see like one tenth of it. There's all kinds of, of studies about perception biases when you're looking Human at error. Exactly. And just to allow this to be data and data driven and so that you know where those priority investments need to be made, whether it's at the state level, the federal level, et cetera. I think um, that's where we're going and that's why technology is so important. Um, and as things are being built back, they should be built back smarter as well as better. Right. I think that's that's the point. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified service disabled veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. So uh, let me jump in with, we, we have two issues I've heard, uh, at least, you know, we've, we've got $4.7 trillion need, $1.2 trillion funded. Uh, sometimes the way we leverage that is by bringing in private partners and public-private partnerships. We've got inflation going on that, you know, and and we have seven percent interest rates in the in the capital markets. Uh, so we have that issue of not enough money. Can we can we lever that money to to do more sooner? And then we also have the issue of because we have limited resources. We have budgets and, and Jill, to your point, uh, contracting mechanisms of um, lowest price technically acceptable, as an example, or, or just trying to get the job done inside the programmed amount so it doesn't leave room for innovation or incentivizing that innovation. Uh, kind of two huge financial burdens, uh, reactions or, or, or good news or bad news stories related to either of those topics. I, th I think we could probably do good news and bad news stories on both, but that's what we want. <laughs> so the truth is, is that inflation is creating, uh, it's definitely interrupting markets right now. We're seeing it on the P3 side and the non P3 side. So, so just a point of clarification, 
P3 is a good mechanism for some projects, but it's not free money. Somebody still has to pay for it, right? And so uh, it's just leveraging private finance as opposed to public financing. But eventually it's either the users, like on a road or, or, or whatnot, are, use, are paying, or it's going to be the city themselves or the state or the federal government through. You may be able to offset some of the costs through monetization of real estate and whatnot, but that's not really the norm for most, uh, most projects. So... Inflation still rears its ugly head in P3, right? It, it rears its head in terms of can drivers afford to pay higher tolls or can um, local government officials uh, afford this new price? And the private sector is not willing to take on inflation risk. And so basically what they're doing is shedding it back to the public sector. So it's not even shared. It's really still on the public sector. So P3 as a delivery mechanism for risk allocation, et cetera, is all great, but it really doesn't resolve that underlying issue of, of inflation. And we've seen a number of P3s canceled recently because of it inflation. We've seen a number of projects that were going out as P3s um, uh, sort of mothballed because of it. Um, although in some cases, I mean, I've been working overseas for years as well. Hyperinflation environments is where we live, right? So, so it shouldn't be that dramatic, but I think that the industry is just getting used to having inflation again. But what we're seeing as a result of that speaks to your second point, and that is a tendency to do what I think is the least efficient thing in the world is to break projects into pieces that are manageable within a budget cycle. And when you do that, you create new risks. You have intersection risk between this piece and the other. It's the least efficient way to get a project done. It doesn't allow for that innovation that can kind of flow through. It creates new sort of interface risk, et cetera. And so the market is, is trying to come to terms with what to do with this inflation. P3 will always play a role. It will never play the role. Um, look, the public sector can borrow very easily. In this country, we are addicted to debt. We love it. Um, and so you can go to anyone. Yes, there's some great instruments like WIFIA and TIFIA that can be accessed at the federal level by the public or private sector. Some private financing tools that are only for the private, like, like private activity bonds. Um, but at this point, with affordability issues, we're definitely seeing seeing a shift back to more traditional financing with public sector financing because it's cheaper, right? Um, and everyone's looking for ways just to reduce the cost. Um, but yeah, I could talk on those two issues for the rest of my life. I probably will, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Duke, reactions? So um, <clears throat> a number of, uh, of reactions. Uh, I want to circle back, though, just one little bit to mention one more thing. Synthetic intelligence will disrupt the construction industry, whether it wants to be disrupted or not. Because in the end, they will have to include it. Uh, they won't be able to compete unless they do. And the government can accelerate that by, as Jill pointed out earlier, you, not having a law, you can say, uh, you say, sir, VA or somebody can say, hey, we want you to do 25% of the uh, horizontal work using AI-enabled autonomy. Which, which is how a lot of things happen. during BRAC lead lead got adapted by the right. by the BRAC program, and we made more sustainable and environmentally friendly buildings. Yes, correct. So, I mean, these these things can be done now, and we're uh, some of us are obviously talking to some of these agencies about doing just that to require that. The other revolution that we're undergoing right now is uh, synthetic biology, synthetic intelligence, synthetic biology. So I call it the synthetic revolution. And it will change, include things including construction and construction materials that we can use, uh, in, in potentially even using in situ materials to do things that we used to have to ship and transport materials to do. Uh, I'll use a simple example to demonstrate even the simplest, lowest tech industry is affected by this. That is, uh, there's a, 
some chain polymer molecules that were invented, uh, and uh, it's being used by the snowmaking industry in the mountains of the Rockies. Now, snowmaking in the Rockies is probably the lowest tech industry you can do. It's pumps, pumping water up the mountain, spraying it on the side of the mountain at night when it's colder to freeze, you know, and to be uh, the snowpack for the next day of skiing. Well, what by in, by injecting these chain polymer molecules, right, that are or from organic substances that they've linked together, uh, you get a ski slope now that is much more resistant to a higher range of temperatures and to higher usage by skiers themselves. And so it lasts longer. Uh, it's more durable. It's cheaper. They use less water. They have better skiing. Everybody wins, right? Environmentally That's friendly. What's Environmentally that? friendly, safe. Yes, yes, yes. It's organic material. Win, so win, 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 win. It's all around. And um, I mean, that's the lowest tech industry I can think of, right? Watering your ski slope. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's already being affected by synthetic biology. I can think of in ba- you know, bank stabilization, ditch, drainage ditch stabilization. All, I can think of creating materials that are extremely uh, resistant to compression uh, on site using materials that previously were not usable or had to be dispensed with on the, on the site. There's all sorts of things that are going to come out of this that are going to change the supply chains for construction. Now, as Joe pointed out, inflation, we haven't had it really since the late, the eighties, the early eighties. So no one knows how to do cost estimating in an inflationary environment in America, really the world. Uh, some parts of the world know how to do it, but we don't. And so everybody's feeling their way through that. And that's, it has a temporary issue. There's a temporary issue with bonds right now because of inflation that will bonds will bounce back because in the end, the returns are going to be higher. But right now they're a dip because their price just went down. You know, when the yield goes up, the price goes down. So uh, some people are buying the dip. Some people aren't yet doing that, but they will. Uh, so it's it's having these confusing effects as industry adapts to the, inf- the inflationary environment. Now, it's not punishingly inflationary, but it's still much more than we're accustomed to having. Uh, the other, the broader issue, though, you know, so some of the P three cancellations may be because of that we can't cost estimate reliably, therefore the risk is too great. Uh, you know, private investment, especially in America, where the focus is in getting your money back and paying your investors within three to five years. That's PE's mantra. Everything about that means you have to get the initial price right, or your revenue stream right, or you're dead. Well, the P 3s revenue stream just got. Jinx, you know, just got hijinked uh, by uh, inflation. So that's why they bailed out. The larger issue to me is how do we make infrastructure a tantalizing investment for private capital? Whether it's subsidizing public infrastructure through the form of P3s that allow revenue sharing or, or other investments in infrastructure that we might normally think of as public, but in the past have been done privately. The first bridge over the Mississippi was by generally by James Eads. He proposed to do it and sold it. You know, he didn't, you know, he proposed to dredge the crow's foot of the the Mississippi Basin and guaranteed a certain depth. And the, if he didn't get that depth in a certain amount of time, the government didn't have to pay him. You know, these were private initiatives that were good for shipping, you know, and were very interested in by the private market. So there are some things that may have traditionally been thought of as public infrastructure that we might find, uh, you know, the Panama Canal was originally a, a, a private project. Bond sales in France, you know, the Lesseps. He had done the Suez Canal, right, uh, as a private ent- ent- entity, right, not a governmental public infrastructure uh, project. So how do we do that? You know, traditionally, the, the returns on these bonds, municipal bonds, other uh, project bonds have been 
so low in our past, will an inflationary environment where the bond rates are higher induce investments in those? I don't know. The problem is also liquidity. Investments in infrastructure tend to be illiquid. You know, you can't get in and get out in, in an era when the average stock is held for only 280 days. Uh, you have a lot of people who want liquidity. And when you when you when your returns are low, as they have been given the rates in the U.S. for so long up prior to the inflation that began about a year and a half ago, um, you have lots of money chasing higher returns, and in many cases, chasing marginal investments or ridiculous investments like cryptocurrency, which is one of the reasons that grift went on for so long and is now collapsing, you know, because the returns were promised were higher. And we could have a separate podcast on that. We, 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 that's not it related to infrastructure. That was uh, buying tulip bulbs in, you know, in Holland in the 1600s. So, um, but they were looking for a higher return and a faster return. That's why they did it. That's, it, it wasn't wrong to want what they wanted. It was wrong to, to choose what they invested in. How do we make that possible with infrastructure? How do we make it liquid? You know, and frankly, a coin structure in infrastructure, which is really just a share or a bond with different codicils related to what's being paid and when, right. whether the value can grow or the value is fixed and you get a certain amount at the end like a bond or the value can grow like an equity share. You can do all sorts of things, whether you call it a coin or you call it a share or you call it something new, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. There's probably a financial way to do that um, that we haven't yet explored. And, and I'm trying to see if I can generate some interest in, in doing that, especially now that the market returns might be higher on some of these things in private investment, that is not, not public. Um, you know, uh, that's uh, one of the challenges, I think, to mobilizing capital, not just government capital, which is enormously useful, and beneficial, but there's going to be a huge amount of private investment associated with adapting with, to and mitigating the effects of climate change, whether it's relative sea level rise, changes in flood behaviors in the in the interior, you know, because the amount of water falling on the middle miss and, and uh, the upper miss, middle miss and lower miss is increasing. Uh, responding to the drought in the West that is going to get worse, you know, the drought conditions. Uh, there'll be plenty of private investment associated with that too. How do we make that something that can be uh, a return on investment that's competitive with other available investments in our economy? I think AI and synthetic bio uh, will help with that, but it won't solve the problem unless we come up with the right instruments that uh, can be exploited. I'll jump in real quick. I have a quick reaction, but I do want Jill's response. I, I go back to, you know, in real estate, good projects get money. In infrastructure, good projects should get money. But the risks associated with political decision making and, you know, government subsidies and winners and losers makes it hard. I, I believe, uh, sir, we talked about the Norfolk deepening and the business case was there that all of the stakeholders outside of the public entities were willing to pay for the for the Norfolk deepening because of the business case to their business and their economics inside of their own their own businesses made it made it worthy of them saying we'll foot the bill we don't want public money uh, you can yeah. correct me there no no I won't correct you but I will give you the 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 epilogue <laughs> and the epilogue is maybe they played their cards right. Because in the end, the federal government deepened that that channel, and they only paid a portion of the cost rather than paying for all of it. So was the weight? I can't do the opportunity cost analysis right. for mayors and you know everybody else. But was the weight for a few extra years, not nearly as long as I thought it was going to be, 
was it worthwhile for them to defray half the cost to the federal government? Maybe it was, right? Yeah, I, th- I think I think um, there's a lot of dry powder <clears throat> on the sidelines looking for infrastructure and, and investment. I mean, we, we've got engineers funds. listening, not financiers, so we have to tell them what there's, dry there's powder. A lot, is. There's a lot of money <laughs> sitting on the on the um, on the sidelines looking for infrastructure investment. Like every two weeks, you hear about a new fund for infrastructure investment. Um, the challenge is when we're talking public infrastructure as opposed to private, and private includes energy because it's just completely managed differently, right. is that the value of P3 and of that private capital is tying performance and delivery of the infrastructure to at-risk private capital. It's not just the need for money, it's 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 putting that money at risk, and that changes the performance of contractors, et cetera. Um, the challenge in my experience, because I do this every day of my life, right, with public-private partnerships and transactions, is that the public sector is slow because they are limited in terms of their procurement rules and everything else in terms of what they're allowed to do, right? Um, and it takes a long time to structure a financial transaction that would allow for that kind of investment of a billion dollars or whatever um, with the payment mechanisms, relief events, and all those sorts of things. To get the financing arranged as well, it's millions of dollars out of pocket in terms of lenders, advisors, legal advisors, et cetera. So so that's been one of the challenges. I would say I think the U.S. industry um, would benefit from an injection of new players. We're seeing it now. We've got some new entrants right now, but I think right now we're, we're kind of dominated by a handful of groups that are providing um, the capital. Now they're getting their money from pension funds and everyone else, but they're just, they're dominating the market in terms of winning all the procurements, kind of being on the, on the leading edge of that. The secondary market, which is, I think Duke is, Duke is right. There needs to be an opportunity for other people also to get into this market, right? And so the sale of those shares, um, once you might get through the construction or even at the beginning as a smaller set aside that doesn't necessarily have to be um, completely at risk. There really isn't a market for that right now. There is an opportunity. We've been talking with people, particularly with DBEs that want to get in. They don't, they don't want, you know, the minority groups would like to have a seat at the table when we're talking about the equity side, not only the construction side. So how can we carve that out? And that doesn't only have to be for DBEs. It can be for anybody, right? And so increasingly we're, we're, we're requesting, requiring again in procurements that there's kind of a, a carve out for smaller term investors that might get in and out. Now, you speak to 100 different public agencies they're all going to have a different opinion about whether they want investors being able to have a liquid investment. They want to see them with skin in the game for a long period of time. But that's the majority player. That's the one that you're marrying, not necessarily everybody around them. So I do agree that there's an opportunity there. I I think the U.S. P3 market particularly needs a revamping. Um, I'm quite disappointed with it at the moment, and I work in it every day of my life, right? There's a lot of room for improvement. Um, We're not seeing adequate risk sharing. Uh, The private sector is repelling the risk and putting it back on the public sector. Um, The the markups, the margins, the the, the returns are, are... excessive when compared to other countries. Um, and why is that? Maybe we just don't have the competitiveness we need. But I think uh, to Duke's point, I think there's an opportunity there to broaden this. Um, it just requires people to start thinking about it. And then again, getting it into the procurement documents in a way that makes sense for the investors. Um, and then they can get in and out on a secondary market. The reaction I have is necessity is the mother of invention, right? And I always look at P3 as 
bring the highest and most talented, most innovative solution to the table so that we can 10x the result in in one tenth of the time. Or, or as Duke was talking about, we take labor out of it and we're using technology or synthetics. Like, shouldn't, and maybe this is to your point, Jill, new players coming in, I find that they're, the industry, I'll call it AEC, archaic, expensive, and complicated, they're, they're <laughs> the ones bringing in a lot of these P3 mechanisms to control the, down, the, the, the downstream workload that they're going to get out of the projects, as opposed to innovative financing coming in, bringing in the technology that's going to beat the status quo. Meaning if I've got a $5 billion project, I just, I just, I just won a $5 billion R&D allotment to go figure out how do we deliver this infrastructure project better, smarter, faster. Um, and I don't, I don't know what your reactions are to that or if, I'm, if that even makes sense. But I think that there's so many players that are entrenched in doing business the way we've always done it and delivering infrastructure the way we've always done it, that it makes it hard to say, hey, we could do that better, smarter, faster, but that really screws up our current business model. And I don't know that we're nimble enough to handle innovation or have enough R&D going on to say, you know what, we're, we're getting ready to pivot to the future. Yeah, I, I think there's a difference, though, from a public sector perspective between cutting edge and bleeding edge. And so a lot of the a lot of the bleeding edge technologies, um, you know, so, so I'm working on a project with uh, Lake Oswego in Oregon, and it's a wastewater treatment replacement project. Um, for the second time ever in the United States, the technology they're going to use is something called aqua nereida. It's a different kind of microbe. It does whatever it does. Right. Sequencing batch. Um even getting people comfortable with something like that, where there are models outside of the U.S. and there's one in, in Whitefish, Montana, um, it, it takes a lot of convincing. People are like, if I'm investing once in my life in this project, I want to make sure that this has been tried and tested. So there is that issue of who goes first, right? Um, we don't yep. have a lot of sort of crazy billionaires and trillionaires out there that are willing to just roll the dice like an Elon Musk on a, on a space shot, right? Um, so, so I do think that there's a, a progression. Um, again, I think that the procurement officers really have the pen. Um, to Duke's point, you can very easily prescribe what you want in terms of the right. use of new technologies and those sorts of things. But it needs to be affordable, realistic, and kind of tried and true because even permitting agencies, you know, if you're going after an MPDS permit, they get very nervous about something that they've never seen before. And we want to accelerate that process, not slow it down. Right. So to slow it down, introduce something they've never heard of before, and you're going to slow it down by about 10 years. So, um, so yeah, so I think there is that fine line. But you're right. The, the, the art and the science of P3 is to try to define output parameters without being overly prescriptive on the input, um, but within reason, because you do have to be able to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And when it works, it works well. And when it doesn't, it can be a disaster. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open 
contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.